Bilingual in America. Tunei el loga fi America. Bilinguismo negli Stati Uniti. Bilingue in America. Ser bilingue in America. I'm Suzanne Lasser, and this is Bilingual in America. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Harvard-educated doctora Veronica Benavides. She has spent her career exploring and advocating for the intersection of identity, language, and learning. She is the founder and CEO of the Language Preservation Project, and Dr. Benavides works to support the reclamation and flourishing of heritage languages across global contexts. Through learning resources and cohort-based programs for educators and families, the Language Preservation Project decolonizes language learning to promote bilingualism in homes and in schools. Welcome, 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 Veronica. Thank you so much for having me, Suzanne. I feel like a super fan. I was mentioning this already. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and I've heard you do those introductions many times, and now it's my name. So thanks for having me on. It's really cool to hear that. Wonderful. So I know you are so busy, and you are um, visiting at present. So we're going to take advantage of maximizing our time together. And I think that in preparation for today's conversation, we had some background talks and you had shared that growing up you had heard Spanish but didn't speak it and it really wasn't until after college that there was a shift in you in terms of this interest and so Yarina and I would love for you to share about what sparked the realization that yes this is my culture and this is my language. Yeah, great question. It wasn't until after college that I really started to dive into the language, but it was during college that I started to have the mindset shift that was necessary for me to really embrace my language, my cultural identity, and where I came from. I grew up in Houston, Texas, outside of the city in the north side in a district called Aldine. And my parents came from South Texas. They were the first in their family to go to school, the first in their family to speak. English. They went to school in South Texas at a time where they were physically punished for speaking Spanish. And so they really kind of internalized this message about assimilation being necessary in order to be, to be successful. And that was something that um, not only they passed on to their kids, but also received messages from our school and teachers that if they spoke to us in Spanish, it would cause confusion. And so we were raised um, speaking English, but always hearing Spanish when my parents didn't want us to understand what they were saying, or my grandma who only spoke Spanish, we kind of had basic conversations with her. And I never really saw it as something that was necessary or beneficial or positive until I got to college. And that's actually when I felt like other or different. You know, I went to a school that was mostly Black and Latino, and then I went to college and I was in a predominantly white space. And I felt really out of place. I didn't feel a sense of belonging. Um, I struggled a lot, actually. And it wasn't until I accidentally stumbled upon the Mexican-American Culture Committee that we had there. And I only went there because I was a college freshman. And if you were a college freshman like me looking for free food, like you went to the meetings where they were serving pizza and they were serving pizza. I went in and they were planning their celebration for Mexico's Independence Day and asked if I could read a poem. 
And that poem, I said, yes, because I love poetry, but the poem was something that I had never seen before in my K-12 experience. The cover of the book that had in it was a beautiful brown woman looking into a mirror and seeing kind of her indigenous reflection mirrored back to her. And the lines of the poem were so powerful. I still like carry them with me today. Some of them go like this. I am a Chicana. I am a brown feminist. I am a liberated Latina, wild and free. And these words I'd never seen in an academic setting before, never seen myself reflected in that curriculum. And it really sparked a change in me to to want to learn more about my history, to take a pride in it, to understand where I came from. And so that's really set the base for me to be able to um, have more of a, a sense of pride in where I came from, and then also wanting to learn more about my heritage language and got me into the path of education because while I felt really happy that I discovered this, I also felt a great sense of injustice because less than 20% of students from my high school went on to college. And had I never gone to college, I would have never had this experience or this, this challenge to the dominant narrative. And so I wanted to make sure that all children, no matter where they came from, saw themselves reflected positively in their humanity in, in the curriculum and in the books. So that's kind of my entry into this work and entry into education. What a powerful testimony you share. And um, first of all, I want to say I'm sorry for being, you know, the physical abuse and trauma that that imprint left on your family. And then therefore, of course, they pass it on because they fear for for you, for, your, for their children, but that you created and discovered something beautiful uh, in that experience. You know, there's no accident that you were there uh, looking for a slice of pizza, <laughs> but found, you know, a, a real connection to like who else you are in the world and can be in the world. And that's just outstanding. And um, and then you you do something amazing, like grow this company and 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 push all boundaries. In recent conversations and interviews, you find more and more that there's a trend in reclaiming heritage, especially as it relates to our identity. What have you witnessed that affirms that this is really important and necessary work? Yeah, definitely. I, I think that there's a generational readiness for this work. Um, I think there's still in a lot of environments and a lot of states and a lot of different communities, a very hostile attitude towards heritage and home languages. And that I think we have to, to recognize and recognize that there are a lot of families, like you said, that want the best for their children. And so make decisions based on that. But there are also a lot of districts, states that are shifting their attitudes towards bilingualism and creating more programming and having you know, the seal of biliteracy and creating a space that allows for families to step into their cultural and linguistic strengths. So I think that there is like the fact that my parents grew up in a, in a generation where, where they experienced that educational trauma and then had children and just wanted to listen to the teachers and what they said 
And that's not necessarily the environment that I'm in or that other families find themselves in. So I think that there is a generational readiness for it. And on top of that, there's also work. I think it's, it's way back. I can't remember when, like, but maybe even in the early 1900s where a, a um, linguist writes about this concept of third generation return, third generation, like, return to their heritage language and the concept that, well, we know that most heritage languages are lost by the third generation, but even with that, that there is some instance in which third generations then begin to return to their heritage languages after it's been lost. And so I wanna, I wanna look into that more, but I do find our organization working a lot with those third generation heritage language speakers that have some relationship to the language, but also may feel a sense of um, shame around it and need support in claiming their right to use it and to learn it and to have it as a part of their identity and culture. Amazing. I had not heard about the third generation like flip. Like I want to know more about this. But what's beautiful is that more and more organizations people are realizing the need for this. And maybe maybe we could like shorten that timeline. Maybe we can make mm-hmm. it a first generational, a second generational conversation, exactly. right? You know, we don't have to follow any patron, any pattern. We can mm-hmm. we can like shift the conversation now because people care about these issues. They care about understanding who they are, where they come from and how we are who we are. Yeah, exactly. And, and we, I mean, we've just been in operation for a year, and there's been an incredible interest and demand for our work. And and one of our pilot programs that we ran with families had a mixture of, of participants across generations. So it was for Spanish heritage speakers, but was done bilingually. And we had simultaneous translation because there was a range of languages represented there in the sense that we had, um, some people who were Spanish dominant, some that were English dominant. And I think the importance of having those conversations across that kind of first, second, third generation is that you can also talk about experiences across those generations. And so Mm. some of the first generation, you know, parents were talking about the fear of their child not saying things correctly or, or them losing their Spanish. And some of the second and third generations could speak about like, okay, when my parents said this, it actually made me more afraid to say anything. And sometimes I wish that they would just let me speak in Spanglish because that was where I felt more comfortable. And so I think having those testimonies across what the experience is like is also really helpful to understand what's needed to create a bilingual home or classroom and what's needed to create a bilingual home and classroom is not necessarily just to focus on grammar or literacy or more of those technical aspects of the language, which is important, but the foundation needs to be a connection to the language. The foundation needs to be an interest in the language. And so how can we prioritize that, that our children feel a strong connection to their language so that they want to learn and develop it and use it? What a beautiful, authentic and vulnerable space you're creating for families to really be real. Because when you're real, that's when you can uncover all these layers, all, all everything that's been hiding, 
right? You can just be so true with yourself and that's the first step to anything, right? Yeah, exactly. So Veronica, when you were speaking, I, I was thinking about a few different things. Um, one is, you know, this idea of changing, right? Um, this idea and generational readiness and moving into one generation, like Yarina was saying, it made me think of, you know, our friend, Dr. Medina, who always talks about this madre, right? Like, mm-hmm. you gotta change things up and mix things up. And then in terms of heritage language learning, we had spoken with Ophelia Garcia, and she said that because you're either a native speaker or you're not. And even though oftentimes we think, oh, well, we weren't born outside the U.S. and we came to learn the language here. She had a very convincing stance about mm-hmm. how when we own that, yes, I'm a native speaker, that we reclaim some of that power. And then just some of the challenges, like you said, there's a group uh, that I follow on Instagram that's called Spanish Sin Pena. And it's a group Mm -hmm. where similar to you, right? They talk about your work. They talk about not feeling judged because they didn't learn to speak Spanish growing up and having a space and a community of others just like them. So that now at this point in their life, whatever that may be, they can embrace and be accepted and use the language, like you said, for connecting purposes. Yeah, I mean, I love that group, Spanish Sin Pena and Dr. Jose Medina and the work that he's doing and Ophelia Garcia. That episode was really great. And I heard what she said about heritage language. My ears like perked up when I heard that, obviously, because it's a term that we use. And I'd love to be in conversation with her about it. Maybe we could set up a conversation on the podcast. I think for Dr. Garcia, her first language may be Spanish, or she is a native Spanish speaker. And when she mentioned that people like me are native Spanish speakers, that doesn't fit me. I don't feel like a native Spanish speaker. I feel a different, I think, relationship to Spanish than she does. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel a different relationship to Spanglish than other people may. Um, And I know that that's something that she mentioned in um, that episode that, you know, the different variations of Spanish then are made less than, right? Because that's a native language as well. But I didn't grow up speaking Spanglish or a different variation of Spanish. I didn't grow up speaking Spanish. So it doesn't really fit me to say that I'm a native Spanish speaker my Spanish is actually kind of funny. Like, <laughs> so I speak to my span, my son in Spanish. I think it's, I think it's pretty good now. I speak to my son in Spanish, but I didn't grow up speaking it or Spanglish. And so sometimes like I look up words and we use a word that I find in Spanish dick or something like that. And my mom's like, es esa palabra, no usamos esa palabra, la palabra es esta, y yo como, pues tú nunca me enseñaste, entonces estoy aquí como hablando una mezcla de español del, del valle y una español de, yo no sé, España, and so I think that is a unique experience of someone who has kind of like starting from the ground up type of sp- Spanish, and so For me, I think what she was describing people like me, I don't resonate with native Spanish speaker and heritage Spanish feels more appropriate for the relationship that I have with the language. I can understand your perception, right? And the way you feel and how you interpret what she said. I think that is one of the 
probably the beautiful things about your organization, right? Your company, your business, your podcast, that there's a space for everyone and the language can be embraced in, in a unique way that, that fits. So yeah, and maybe we will come up with a better word as well, as well. And I know that she mentioned that of like, we don't have a word yet that fully captures it. And I do like the sentiment of like taking ownership over it. And for me, I think that that is very exciting to see where we go with this conversation. Absolutely. Well, speaking of podcasts and future episodes, we also found out that you have your own podcast. Is it talking to grandma? Yes. Which to us seemed like we share similar missions. So tell Mm -hmm. us, was the podcast like an outgrowth of the language preservation project or how did that come to be? Yes, it is a part of our work at the language preservation project. And I'm a big podcast listener. And I remember starting this journey of wanting to raise my children in Spanish and like, I, I think this is also a part of why I, <laughs> why I was like, I don't know if I resonate with the word, with the word native Spanish speaker, because I was looking for like, non-native, like Spanish speaking, like experiences raising bilingual children, because there is a lot of like doubt or like fear of, is this something I can do? There's a lot of literature out there saying that you should speak in the language that you're most comfortable in. Um, and so for me, it made me made me really worried if this was the right path. And a lot of the um, examples that I saw of non-native Spanish speakers raising bilingual children were white women. And I was like, well, this isn't really my experience either because my relationship to the language is very different. It has this history of linguistic and cultural oppression that isn't really the perspective or the issues that these other people are dealing with. And then I was listening to one podcast that had by chance a guest who was doing what I was doing and she talked about it for two minutes. And I was like, okay, so there's somebody who like has Spanish as a heritage language. It wasn't their native language. They don't feel totally comfortable about it, but they're doing it and it's been successful, it can be done. And so I was like, I want more of that. I think it's really important to have these conversations out there to show that bilingualism and connection to heritage language is possible, even if there's been a rupture, and this is how we do it. And so that's why we started Talking to Grandma, to have a podcast that's just dedicated to that. And we called it Talking to Grandma, because I couldn't talk to my grandma growing up. And it really wasn't until I reclaimed and learned my language and thank God she's still with us. She's my only grandparent that I've been able to build a relationship with her and my grandchildren, her great-grandchildren are the only grandchildren and great-grandchildren in our family that can speak to her. Um, So that's really special and I think beautiful. And so we are, the podcast really explores various heritage language speakers, not only Spanish, but, you know, many different heritage languages to talk about how people are going about doing this from the family perspective, from the educator's perspective. And then also we have some scholars and researchers um, on the show as well. You're doing just extraordinary work. Like you're hitting all the important pieces, all the important points and What a beautiful gift you've given your children and your grandma and yourself 
right? And, and being able to do that and extending it for others so that they know that's possible. That's still always possible. I think that that's really important to start to change that narrative and show that it that it is possible. And sometimes it's also like, well, we've had generations of, of not doing this. So how do we go about doing it as well? And I think talking about what those practical things are, if you don't feel, you know, fully fluent in the language, or you feel like you have some gaps. So maybe Veronica, you could talk a little bit more about um, exactly how your organization goes about preserving heritage languages, right? What does that look like? Yeah, so we have, you know, kind of our work that is open to everybody, no matter where you are globally that we've talked about, which is the podcast. And then we also have like book guides and resources that we um, share through our, our website and our mailing list. And then also I think our like social media, we just try to provide resources and elevate voices around how to do this work from an educator and, and family perspective. And then we also have more formal work with districts and organizations where we run language preservation collectives with families or with educators. And we're really passionate about working with both of those groups because when we look at the history of linguistic and cultural oppression, it happened you know, systemically through schools. Schools were a vehicle for that but it impacted our families and communities. It shifted the way that we operated in our homes. And so if we're going to start to heal and repair, the work can't just be done in the home and it can't just be done in the school, but it has to be done in both places. And so we work with both of those those groups and our language preservation collectives are kind of a mixture of an online course, communities of practice, and a bilingual curriculum that is uh, social justice focused um, to use with children zero to eight. And um, it's really exciting. We've run four cohorts our our first year and planning to expand um, into our second year. So it's not something necessarily like you know, as an individual, you could sign up for, but if you're in our focus cities, it could be that we're recruiting for that. Like in Denver, we were recruiting for that this past year in Asheville, North Carolina, we were recruiting for that. Um, We're expanding into Houston in the upcoming school year. And so I think it also, if, if families follow us on Instagram or on our mailing list, we'll be aware of the opportunities of when we begin to open that and it's free and, and open to educators and, and families in the area. Well, of course, um, the next thing that you have to tell us is where we can, you know, where the listeners can find more information about the Language Preservation Project, because for our listeners who are in any of those immediate areas, we, we want to get them to you. Yeah, yeah. And I would say, um, if you're not in that area, too, you should follow us too or sign up because we are growing quickly. So our Instagram is at Language Preservation Project and our website is thelanguageproject.co, not com, but .co. And I think if you just Google us, you can also find our Facebook and LinkedIn or whatever your preferred um, social media outlet is. Veronica, we are so honored that we are like meeting you right at the start of your legacy work and the huge impact that you are already creating. You are doing a desmadre. You are creating disruption. <laughs> and with that comes healing and, mm-hmm. and comes new light 
And we are just in awe of the work that you're doing. You've done so much already, truly, in a short amount of time. And we cannot wait until the project comes to New York because we're selfish. We are in New York. (laughs) Hint, hint, plant seed. Yes. And so, um, you know, we're definitely going to be closely following you. And we welcome you to come back and tell us. I know in another year's span, you're going to have even more breakthroughs more uh testimonies more more healing yeah which is what your work really encompasses and uh, we are just so grateful thank you so much for spending this time with us here in bilingual in america doctora Verónica benavides we appreciate you and we can't wait to see what's next pues muchas gracias. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for the work that you all are doing, um, the narratives that y'all are creating, and just it's really powerful. And thanks for thanks for having me. It was an honor. It's always wonderful to link arms with like-minded individuals to help expand this umbrella of what uh, bilingualism, you know, multilingualism, biculturalism, multiculturalism looks and sounds like, and. Uh, we just really hope that uh, you, yourself personally, and the rest of the Language Preservation Project team continue to speak your beauty. Thank you. Thank you for your interest in the stories we share. By sharing, following, and liking our podcast on anchor.fm, Bilingual in America, and our Instagram blog at bilingualinamerica.podcast, you are speaking your beauty. We welcome your comments and feedback. And we appreciate your support. Follow us, like us, share us.